0: please open up your bible to the book of romans we're in romans chapter 4 and we'll be in verses 13 to 15 Uh, we're driving through romans chapter 4 and remember um we've kind of gone through um, and we've looked at, at one two and three obviously and we hit chapter four and what the apostle paul is doing is he is slowing down to make very clear that justification is through a faith in Christ. Uh, he is going out of his way to make it so that no one can can step back and say, well I, I thought that I thought that we were justified by works. I thought I had to I thought I had to be moral. I thought I had to obey the law. I thought I had to do these things in order to be justified in order to be, righteous before God would love me. And, and so uh, what Romans 4 is, is basically just a pause and just ensuring that everyone is aware that we are justified by faith, okay? And that's what we see this morning. Um, so uh, verses 13 to 15 of Romans chapter 4 says this, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it's adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Amen. Paul in this passage actually leads us really to a a surprising truth, okay? And what we gather out of these verses is that he reminds us is that if there is any salvation, any salvation at all outside of Jesus Christ, then God is less loving. He is not more loving. He is less loving. If the teaching that, that we are justified through works or morality or obedience to the law were true, then that makes God less loving than if we are justified by faith and faith alone. Now, I get that that's a kind of a provocative statement, right? And I'm going to leave that with you for a few minutes, and we're going to go through that uh, a little closer as we move on. Um, But I want to look through the passage as as Paul presses in on this argument, looking at, at three things, okay? In verse 13, Paul announces that Abraham is the heir of the world, right? And that's a pretty unique phrase as well, right? He's the heir of the world, not by his works, but by faith. He's stressing that it's by faith that Abraham receives the promises that God had given him. Remember, throughout Abraham's life, we studied it pretty much all summer long, that God is giving these promises to Abraham. I will make you the father of many nations, and, and uh, all, all, the, all the people of the world will be blessed through you. All of these promises Abraham received by faith, not by obedience. And in verse 14, he goes on to make this argument. There, there cannot be two ways to receive God's promise. There's only one way to receive God's promise, and that is through faith and then finally in verse 15 he tells us uh, in this fallen world sinners like ourselves cannot earn god's favor through the law right the law does not save us we do not earn god's favor by uh, obeying the law the only thing that we can earn by the law is god's punishment god's condemnation and God's wrath. The law shows us, it proves us to be guilty. It shows us that we are in desperate need of a Savior. So, let's jump in with verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. What we see in verse 13 is essentially Abraham is the heir of the world by faith okay it's not that abraham was good remember we've talked about this a couple weeks ago it's not that abraham was the most righteous man in the world and so god just happened to find him because of his righteousness and said abraham you're the heir of the world now because you're so good no abraham is the heir of the world by faith here paul tells us that abraham is the heir of the world through faith he teaches us that our obedience to god's standards of righteousness is not on the basis of inheriting God's promises. Our personal obedience is not the basis that, that we receive the things that God has promised to us. It's, it, God's promises are not conditional that we obey him. Now remember, remember who Paul is addressing. Remember the church in Rome. Remember this is that church in a huge city obviously the city of Rome is is full of pagans and idolaters you know they they're, they're worshipping all other, sorts of other gods and so that's uh, 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 That's part of the congregation in the Church of Rome. But also, we have the Jewish Christians, right? They were raised as Jews, and they converted to Christianity. And the church in Rome had both of these kind of communities, and there was some division amongst them. And so Paul addresses, Paul sends this letter, basically to explain Christian truths, the way that we were to respond to the gospel. And so there are many Jewish Christians in this audience, the people Paul was originally writing to, and the Jews uh, of Paul's day paid very close attention to the law. They had a high respect for the Jewish law, all right. And and to be honest, it's understandable. The prophets, if you know the if you know the Old Testament very well at all, the prophets had warned for for hundreds of years, right, that because of their disobedience to the law they were going to be sent into exile. And that's exactly what happened. Babylon comes in uh, and destroys Jerusalem, tears apart the city, overthrows uh, Judah, and takes the Jewish people into exile. And they spent 70 years in exile. And when they came out of exile, one thing was was really kind of emblazoned in their minds. That was essentially, we're never going to make that mistake again. We, we are not going to be so disobedient that this happens ever again. And so the Jewish people, after the exile, they come out and they're very devoted to the law of God. And that's a good thing. It, it was good that they were devoted to the law and they're pursuing obedience. But unfortunately, that devotion to the law of God became twisted. And and they kind of forgot what it was intended to do. And they began to think that the law of God was the instrument by which they were made righteous before God. They forgot that that they were justified, made righteous by faith. And they began to think that it was the instrument where they received all these promises that God had made them. So it led them into this kind of extreme legalism, which which if you read the Gospels, you see Jesus dealing with. Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees, and he's attacking legalists, and he's calling out hypocrites, right? Because they're all guilty, and and the legalists are are guilty of the same things that they're forbidding. But that existed in Paul's day, too. Paul is just a couple of decades uh, after Jesus, or this, this book, is just a couple of decades after Jesus' resurrection. And here Paul, in verse 13, he is, he's reminding them that the justification that Abraham received came more than 400 years before the law was ever even written. Remember, Abraham lived several hundred years before Moses. Moses is the author uh, of the book of uh, the Pentateuch. And so Abraham lives uh, four or five hundred years before the law was ever even written. But what we know is that Abraham was declared righteous. But he was declared righteous before the law. And so we know that Abraham could not have been declared righteous because of his obedience to law because he predated the law god justified abraham declared him to be righteous by faith long before the law ever came on the scene and so it's clear from that from uh, that god's law is not the instrument whereby abraham is declared righteous or accepted by god verse 13 paul focuses our attention really on three things In those things, he points to this truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay, and what we see in verse 13, three things. The first thing is, we see the object of the promise. Okay, the object of the promise. Uh, Notice who are the recipients of the objects of the promise. Now, uh, the NASV is probably the most literal translation from uh, Greek into English. And the NASV uh, says this, it says, "...to Abraham or to his descendants." That's a little bit more accurate than what the ESV says, because the ESV says to Abraham and his descendants, it should be or there. Uh, So the promises given to Abraham was not specifically for him or even for his direct descendants, his, his sons, right? Not necessarily intended for Isaac exclusively, okay? Yes, they received them. Yes, they had them. They participated in them, but they were for his descendants. They're not only for Abraham and for Isaac, and not even, to be honest with you, for the people of God in the Old Testament. The promises that God gave to Abraham were to his seed, his descendants. All those who shared the faith of Abraham, the faith in God that Abraham had, that's who the promises are for. All of those So essentially what Paul is saying is to all the people of the faith, all the people of the faith, the promises that God gave to Abraham are for you. Today we call them Christians, right? They're for us. They're, They're not just something for the Old Testament people of God. They're not just for the patriarchs themselves individually. Those promises are for us. He's reminding us then that the object of God's promises are not just Abraham and his physical descendants, but all who trust in God through Christ. Remember, Abraham, we saw last week, Abraham is our spiritual father. Even if you are not Jewish by your blood, if you're not a physical descendant of Abraham, you you are still the seed of Abraham through faith. You're a spiritual descendant. Next we see, he, uh, he speaks of the nature of the inheritance, okay? And he uses really an incredible phrase here. Um, Abraham, right, he was the heir of the world, is what the Scripture says. See, Paul is using this word to describe what God has promised to Abraham. Now, we know in Genesis that God doesn't use um, exactly that language, right? It's that's, that's not the language used in the book of Genesis, But Paul's language here summarizes so many things that God did explicitly say to Abraham. And so what what Paul is doing here in the book of Romans is he's kind of summarizing all of the promises that God gave to Abraham. All all of the promises throughout Abraham's life um, we see, you know, so uh, that... Uh, Abraham would be the father of many nations and and all the people of the world would be blessed through him. Those kinds of promises that God gave to Abraham, Paul's summarizing them all up. He's bringing them all together. He says, Abraham is the heir of the world. Remember how the prophets looked for a day when all the nations would gather together and worship God. Paul is saying in the gospel in the gospel of Jesus Christ that promise is being fulfilled and that is a promise that is not only made to Abraham but it's made to every believer we live in a world where oftentimes you know we we share our faith and we try to demonstrate the love of Christ to others and it's rejected even mocked and to be honest that can be discouraging but Paul is reminding us that one of the promises that God has given us is that he will be faithful to bring the nations to worship Christ. You are the heir of the world in Christ. And it's clear, even from, from the nature of that inheritance, that salvation has to be by grace. How could we ever earn the right to be the heir Of the world. It's impossible. So from from the nature of the inheritance, we see that salvation is by grace and grace alone. Right? But he's not done. The apostle is going to continue here. Right? He goes on to point at at the means um, of the inheritance, the way the inheritance is received. Okay? Notice again these words in verse 13. In verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. Did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. In other words, the scripture here is saying faith, not obedience, is the instrument by which we receive God's promise. It is not about obedience. Okay? Even more importantly, he, he's saying faith in and of itself doesn't say it's the righteousness of Christ credited to us and received by faith that saves. So the way you receive this blessing, the way you receive the promises, the way you become the heir of the world is by faith. And yet, just like in Paul's day, so many people today, so many people think that the way that they are accepted by God the way that they are made right before God is to be good. They, I mean, you, you could go out on the street in Billings. You could walk out this building, go downtown, and, and just kind of do a little survey. You know, how can you be made right by God? What, what do you think you have to do to go to heaven? The answer will be, I have to be a good person. I have to do the right thing. Something along the lines of uh, obey God, make myself right, be moral. So many people will tell you the way that you are accepted by God, the way that you please God, is essentially behavior modification. Keeping his commandments or, or keeping moral commandments in general, to be a nice person. That's a general way of describing all of this. And I'm, I'm not saying that we should not pursue morality or obedience. Those things are important. Those things are vital to the Christian life and the pursuit of holiness. But those things are not what justifies us. Those things are not what, what makes God love you. Paul is directly contradicting this idea that, that I have to be a good person to be made right by God, before God. He knows that it's our natural tendency to think that we need to clean ourselves up in order to be accepted by God. A few years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, and I invited him, uh, I invited him to join us on, on Sunday morning. And he gave me the, the I mean, you guys have all probably heard this same response. He said, well, you know, if, if I came to your church and I sat and their lightning would strike me as I sat because, you know, essentially saying I'm so bad that, that God won't have me in his church. My, and my response is, that's silly. Are you kidding me? You don't have to clean yourself up so that God will love you god loves you first right we love him because he first loved us i'm going to argue in just a couple of minutes um, i'm going to argue in just a few minutes that not only is it not the basis of our inheriting god's promises it calls into question the love of god this idea that being good is what makes god love us and save us is really calling into question the love of god in general to say that we are saved by our own obedience calls into question the love of god now how does how does paul argue this case out of romans chapter 4 right you see it in verse 14. He says, uh, there cannot be two ways to the promise. So, 14, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Okay, so... Paul is saying here that the belief that, that we can save ourselves by being good actually assumes that God is less loving rather than more loving, right? And so to the people who say that, that we can save ourselves, that, that we have to be good, and then, and then God will see us as righteous and then give us these blessings and save us, uh, what that does is that portrays a less loving God than the God of the Scriptures who says we are saved by faith and faith alone. Right now, we've already mentioned that I've not answered it. So let's begin to, to break that down for you. Again, uh, remember, Paul is speaking to a people who believe that obedience to the law brings righteousness. Right? There, he has a Jewish congregation that he's originally writing to, and they believed that obedience to the law, to the Old Testament, is how uh, how they were made righteous, how they were declared righteous. If you obey the law. You'll be pronounced righteous. That's what they taught. That's what they believed. They also believe not only that the law brings righteousness, but they believe that those who are righteous will, through that righteousness, receive the reward, the inheritance, the promise. Okay, so uh, what they believed is they believed that, that obedience to the law, completely obeying the law, they'd be made righteous. God would say, yep, you are obedient, therefore you're righteous. And because you're righteous, now you start getting these rewards that I've been promising. Now you start getting these rewards that I promised to Abraham, that I promised to David. All of these rewards I've been promising to my people, you get because of your obedience to the law. That's what they believed. And so it's clear you're righteous, you're pronounced righteous, pronounced righteous, you receive the promise. That's how they believed it to, to occur. And the scripture here, the Apostle Paul, has already made it absolutely clear in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, just in the book of Romans, that nobody keeps the law. And that nobody does it. Nobody's capable of doing it. Nobody obeys the law. Nobody can be categorized of being a good person, a nice person, a person who keeps the commands, a person who keeps the law. There's no one who obeys the law. And we can see it in in Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 3. Specifically in Romans chapter 3, he gets very blunt there. None is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God no one does good not even one we are all guilty no one obeys the law and so the apostle paul brings this tension in law between law and faith and promise and he says look it can't be both ways if, if you're going to teach that you're saved by your works by being good, if you're going to teach that salvation uh, comes through the keeping of the commands, then it makes faith and it makes the promise void because it deprives them of value. It makes them worthless. And so those who claim that we can be saved, that, you know, we can receive God's goodness, that we can have a relationship with him forever just by being good and trying to be obedient. What, people are, what they're doing is they're contradicting God's promises that are laid out so clearly in the Scriptures beginning all the way back in Genesis. Paul says, now how can that be? How could it possibly be? Right? If, if what you're saying is true, then you're making the promises of God void, null. You're making faith worthless. What he says next in verses 14 and 15 is you're not saved because of your behavior. You're not saved because of your behavior. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. He says two things here. First of all, he says, having already made it clear that nobody is good, if you say then that the way that you're accepted by God is by being good, then no one is accepted by God. If the teaching is that, you, that obeying the law and being a good person is how you are made righteous, then no one's righteous, no one's saved, no one's justified, no one receives salvation. There's no hope, we're all condemned. Because no one's good, no one obeys the law. You've made void the promise. There's nobody who will receive these promises of God. And I guess that means that you've made God a liar. If you're saved by being good, no one is saved because no one is good. Because there is only one person who is ever good, and that's God the Son, Jesus Christ. So Paul says all those promises mean nothing if the way that you receive them is through your own goodness, your own obedience, your own efforts. That's the first way, he says, because no one has actually kept the law. You make the promises void if that's what you're going to teach. And, and this is a this is second way that, that you make the promise void. He's going to continue here. You see, if, if you suggest that God loves only those who earn his love, that God accepts only those who do enough to please him, that they, they, they pursue obedience, they pursue the law, that because of that, if it, God then responds to their goodness and then he bestows his promises on those who first love him. If, if that's what you're going to say, if that's what you're boldly going to teach, one who says that God loves us because we first loved him, because we first obeyed him, if, if whoever says that, the people who teach that, they've turned the scriptures on its head. Because it's not what the scriptures say. If we're going to teach that we come to God first and, and we turn to him and we obey him and we pursue him and then he responds to us and he responds with love by saving us, then we've flipped the scriptures upside down because this Bible says. We love him because he first loved us. He does not respond to us. We respond to him. So the apostle here in Romans chapter 4 is saying, if you teach that salvation is by your goodness, then you're saying that God only saves those who love him and obey him first. Because they love him and obey him first, then he saves them. In other words, they save themselves. That's, that's what Romans chapter 4 is saying. If, if you're going to teach that, that, you, that you muster up enough righteousness, enough obedience on your own, that then God responds to you, then what you're teaching, what you're believing, is you save yourself. And that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. We don't earn our salvation. We don't have to condition God's love by our obedience. God loves us because God is good and God is loving. But if this were true, if this were true, if we save ourselves in this way, then it makes us more loving than God. And going back, going back to the beginning of Romans chapter 4, then we would have the right to stand before God and boast. And everyone, Jew and Gentile, knows that that is blasphemous. That we do not earn our salvation. God is gracious and he's loving and he's kind and he's merciful and he's forgiving. And even though we're sinners, he still loves us. When we proclaim that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, look, people People immediately respond. It's uncomfortable. The the response is something along the lines of, wait a minute, that's that's narrow-minded, right? There are people out there who have never heard of Jesus. There there are Buddhists out there who don't believe that they need salvation. That's bigoted. Why why would you say that Jesus is the only way? That is intolerant. You can't say that. Why, Why would you say that Jesus is the only way? I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but always, talking to a non-Christian, that's the immediate response. How can you say that? Jesus might be a way, but he can't be the only way. But think about that for a minute. Paul's saying, if, if you say that salvation is based on being good, then you're saying that people have to save themselves. That God has to wait until they're good in order to pronounce his blessings and his promises on them that's a different story than the one that's told in the scriptures and the one that says while we were yet sinners christ died for the ungodly while we we're still sinners while we we're still ungodly while we we're still his enemy christ died for us It's not because I, as a sinner, I mustered up enough of my own righteousness to to achieve that level to where then God would save me. No, that's ridiculous. He reached out to us not because we're loving, not because we're good, but in spite of the fact that we were not those things. In spite of the fact that I was self-consumed, prideful, arrogant, focused on, on my own filth. And in Christ, he gave his beloved son to die in our place. That's far more loving than a God who accepts those who are good and rejects those who are not good enough. Now, see, our salvation is not based on anything in us. The famous quote by Jonathan Edwards that says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. There's nothing in us that draws God to love us. He loves us because he's God. He loves us because he's good. His son's righteousness, his son's obedience, that is what we need. And by a faith in his son, that's exactly what we receive. That's that's what Paul is talking about. When you say that salvation is by being good, you're making God less loving. You're making him less loving. Verse 15: For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Finally, Paul concludes this argument in verse 15 um, by saying, If you try to earn salvation, you'll be condemned. You'll be condemned if you try it this way if you take this approach you'll be condemned trying to earn god's promises by being good will never work it will never work and it never has worked your attempts at goodness will only bring god's wrath remember again paul's audience believed that the law brought righteousness and he, he he's boldly claiming he's saying no look the the law brings wrath The the purpose of the law is to show us that we are sinners, to show us that we are not good, to show us that we are guilty and we need mercy, we need a Savior. That's the purpose of the law. That's what the law is for. And we live in a fallen world, and apart from grace, the law only brings condemnation, because we can look at the law, apart from Christ, we can look at the law and we can say, we have to say, I'm guilty. If this is what God expects of me, I have no hope. The law demonstrates that we have violated God's standards, that we have failed Him, and it brings His wrath. And it's interesting to see how how the tune of people changes when the law is revealed, when when the weight of the law is revealed. When the law is on your side, it's it's amazing uh, how people like to speak about the rule of the law. But when the judgment comes, And the judgment comes in the opposite direction. It's funny how insignificant the rule of, of law seems to them. People will give lip service to God's standards and being good. But apart from grace, nobody likes the law because it shows that we're guilty. Apart from grace, when you really sit down and think about the law, it condemns you. When you think about the law, we know that we fall short. Every single one of us. And people can say, God, you know, God will accept me because I'm good. I'm a good person. I try. I have, I've, 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 you know, good intentions, and, and I, I try to care about other people and help other people and do the right thing. But you begin to tell them what God's standards are. And by the way, there's a guy named Ray Comfort. He does this all the time, this is his entire ministry, and that's what he does. He uses it as evangelism. Right, you begin to tell them what God's standards are based on the law when you give, begin to tell them what God's standard of judgment is against them and then you know what they think of the law they hate the law because it condemns them they hate they do but God God loved the world he so loved the world that he gave his son and his son came into the world perfectly obeyed the law that all those who trust in him might receive his righteousness and then be saved. Accepted by God, not because of something that they did, not because of something in them, not because of their being good, but because of his goodness. That's what Paul means when he says that we are justified by faith and not obedience. We're saved by, the promise, or, or saved by the promises of God, not by the law. The law becomes our friend once we are saved. Christians can look back at the law. We can open up the Old Testament. We can see what God expects of us. And I can look at it and I can say, I'm guilty. But what I see is God's grace because I deserve condemnation and I deserve wrath. But God has saved me. So I see, when I read the law, I see that I fall short. I see that, that I'm, I stand condemned. But Christ saved me. And I can see God's mercy. I can see God's grace. Not just in theory, but in my own life. And when we do that, that's when we, can, that's when we can say with the psalmist, I, I love your law, O oh Lord. Not because I've perfected it but because through it I see that I'm guilty and I have received your grace. But until we're in Christ, the law is our enemy and we'll be condemned by it. So I pray that you would not trust in yourself. That you would trust in Christ and in Christ alone. That you would rest in His work that his work was sufficient. His work was sufficient to cover your sins, to cover all of your sins, that you would never trust in your own goodness, your own niceness, your own morality, but you would trust in Christ's obedience because he perfected obedience on your behalf. And when you do that, you'll find that despite what you deserve, that you will be accepted by God forever. Forever. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning and for the opportunity to to worship you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, that you have shown us that we are not justified because of our obedience, but we're justified through a faith in Christ. God, we thank you that we don't have to rely on ourselves because we'd fall short because we see in your word that we're not not good, that we're not righteous on our own, that we're we're not obedient to the law regardless of how hard we try. But fortunately for us, God, you're, you're good and you're kind and you're gracious. And you don't justify us because of what's in us. You justify us based on what Christ has done on our behalf. God, I pray that we would grow in our faith in Christ pray that the Christians in this room would rest and would be comforted knowing that Christ did the work necessary to save them. God, I pray that if there's someone in here who doesn't know you, who's not in Christ, that you would reveal their sins to them. that You would show them your standard. You would show them that apart from Christ, they stand condemned. And God, I pray that you would lead them to cry out for mercy and cry out for a Savior in Jesus Christ, that they would declare Christ as Lord and repent of their sins and be welcomed in to your family as an adopted son or daughter. Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.